media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 or 12. First question might be, but I thought we were in Psalm 51. We will get there. <laughs> but we're going to have a little bit of that backstory. One of the things that is uh, probably true today that is maybe not so true from a couple generations before is that, folks, we cannot assume from the pulpit that the minute that we say King David, you're going, oh, yeah, King David. And then the minute we say Bathsheba, you go, oh, yeah, Bathsheba. The minute that we say the prophet Nathan, they use all those kind of, kind of come to order in your mind and your heart. And so this morning we're going to look at the backstory. We're going to look at what are, what are these events that happened to lead up to David writing this, led by the Holy Spirit, this this prayer of repentance, this plea for repentance. Because if we don't know the backstory, then we can see it maybe as a little bit of sentimental kind of writings or theoretical. And what we need to see is this is true life to David. His, his life had crashed. And it wasn't because of all these other things. It crashed because of his own choices. And so this morning we're going to kind of look at, uh, you know, how did he go from young David that defeated Goliath, you know, by God's grace, you know, defeated Goliath and, and led armies out to the victory and all these other things that he did. And, and how did he become this man that is quite aged more than likely he's in, he's in his mid-40s when he writes this, when this happens with Bathsheba. Uh, he More than likely, we don't have a definite time, but he's probably been king for about 10 years. How do you go from that to that, you know, where you trust God and you do these incredible things for God to a place where there's just obvious and blatant sin in our lives? So easy when we're talking about David, but could that possibly happen to us? Could it be a place where we had just victories? I mean, that, that song is probably one of my top ten songs that we just sang, uh, mainly because I'm old. And Keith Green was one of the few Christian songwriters in the day that was putting stuff out there. And so I, you put any Keith Green song in front of me, and I can sing it verbatim just because I, I rehearsed it as a teenager. Because it was scripturally based. It was the hope that I needed. It was the direction that I needed in my life. I didn't need a feel-good song. I needed scripture. I needed God's truth in my life. And it was comforting because I could sing it. So this morning, we're going to look at the backstory. Before we get to one very important, very important question. In baseball, how many strikes before you're out? Three. Three. Remember that. That's going to be back. That's going to be relevant today. Now people are going to laugh. Bible tells us back the backstory of Psalm 51 in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to be able to, it's two long chapters. We're not going to be able to go through every verse. Uh, I will give you hopefully more than just the highlights, but I'll give you the details that are important to understand why Psalm 51 is what it is. Uh, what it teaches us about the importance of repentance. And mainly this morning, the importance of where does repentance come? Where does it come from? Is it something we generate in our own hearts because we start feeling really bad? Does it come from some other place? Does it come from your neighbor telling you that you have sinned? Or does it come from the very heart of God? It's really important theologically, but all good theology is to be lived out. And so why we tend as a church to kind of, you know, go over here and talk theology and 
theological principles. There's a purpose. Because Monday's coming and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And folks, good theology is the foundation. Good biblical truth is the foundation of holy living Monday through Sunday. And so we need that. And, and that's why we go back and we begin to see and ask this question, where, where does biblical repentance even come from? Have you ever noticed that it's often easier to uh, to see some in somebody else's life than in your own life? Have you ever noticed that? You know, that it's, man, what was he thinking? Well, you know, what was going through her mind? And yet maybe we're doing something very, very similar in our life, but we're just blinded to it. The Bible says that. I mean, go back and read Proverbs, and there's like five or six different Proverbs that in one way or the other say something like, every man's way is right in his own eyes. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12, 21, 2. There's like five different places in Proverbs when it tells us that from our own eyesight, we may not always seem like we're in error. But we have a reason why we're doing this. But if I saw it in your life, all of a sudden it's like, what was he thinking? What was she thinking? So this is a truth about human nature. And we share in this human nature. And we begin to see this in David's life. We see a man that truly did love God. That the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And yet we begin to see his sin here. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, we're told that Israel is at war. But David is at home in his palace. And I wish we could elaborate on every single detail here because each one ingrains the truth of what we will see here. Uh, but just listen, let it be sufficient to say, David should have been at war. Okay, There's a lot of things that David should have done that led up to this. But he's at home. He's in his palace. And he's allowed Joab and others to, to go out there and fight Israel's war. And normally he would be out there. But, but he's at home. And it says that he's uh, uncomfortable one night. Uh, we don't know if it was late afternoon or in the evening, uh, late, late evening or, uh, you know, evening. The, some translations are going to say afternoon. Some are going to say late evening. But basically, he's taking a, a nap or he's asleep at night. He can't sleep, so he gets up and he begins to to go out. And uh, look what it says in Second Samuel eleven two. And it happened late one afternoon, is the ESV's version, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof to the, of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now watch this. Watch what happens. He sees her, and he inquires about her. Okay? We don't know. Does he really know who this woman is? But look what happens, Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, the very next verse. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, that is, he, he asked about her. Somebody comes back, and this is the report. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, two things you need to know about this. Uh, Uriah the Hittite is one of his commanders. David would have known his head commanders. And, and, and there's something else we need to know that's very important in this inquiry. Bathsheba's married. There, there's no, uh, I don't know what her really her relationship is. No, somebody comes back and says, hey, you inquired, we went and got the information, here's the information. This is Bathsheba, and, and she is somebody's wife. In fact, she is Uriah's wife, and he's one of your commanding generals. 
strike one. Strike one, why? Because this doesn't stop him. He tells them to go get her, to bring him to her without being graphic. They sleep together that evening. And then the next day she goes back to her house. Strike one, guys. This isn't something he's ignorant on. This is something that he has knowledge on. Are there times in our lives, are there times in our lives that maybe we could play a little bit of the ignorance card? I didn't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe you can come up with something. But most of the time, most of the time, whether you know it here or in the depths of here, do you know when you're disobedient to the very things of God? Yeah. See, even lost people, God has given them a conscience. He's given them the knowledge of at least, you know, right and wrong. As we become believers, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin, to show us and bring to the forefront, no, this isn't a gray area. This is black and white. This is wrong or this is right. Important for us to notice from the very beginning that he has knowledge and he... He goes against that knowledge of what God's word is for his life. Uh, There's a lot of others. He already has a whole bunch of wives by now, and yet God has told him in another place, don't take a lot of wives. He's already been disobedient in a lot of different ways. And yet this leisure approach to life and him being the ruler, he takes another step. We're not told much more than when we get to verse 5 that Bathsheba comes back and tells David that she's pregnant. What we don't see is any admittance of David admitting wrong. He doesn't wake up one morning and say, and he cries out to God, God, I have sinned. God, I feel terrible about this. What was I thinking? I mean, maybe we've had moments like that in our lives. And actually, those are good moments, folks. When God brings an awareness of our sin... And we cry out to God and admit it to our sin. That's actually part of the beauty of repentance. No, that's kind of ugly. No, it's beautiful <laughs> that God would love you so much that he would let you become aware of your sin so you don't stay entangled in your sin. You don't go to the depths of your sin. And yet, here we have an ignoring of anything that God would have put on, on David's heart at this point. You know, we just see that he, he continues on. In fact... What we see is that he plunges even deeper into sin. Go down to verse 6 and 7. 2 Samuel 11, 6 and 7 says, So David went, sent word to Joab. He's that commander, the, like the ultimate commander out there underneath um, David. And he said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Okay, he has slept with this man's wife who has great responsibility and is acting in service to David. David calls him back and does small talk. No confession, no apologies, no admittance of sin. No, just the opposite. He actually begins to try to cover up his sin. David's plan is that he called Uriah home so that Uriah would go home to his wife Bathsheba And that, you know, being away for months, we don't know how long, but, you know, naturally he would say, okay, yeah, I get to be with my wife tonight. 
I get to eat at the table and I, I get to spend time with my family. But that didn't happen. Look what happens instead in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So instead of going home to this beautiful wife that was so beautiful that she certainly was attractive to David and he's been off to war, uh, many of us can kind of share in the confusion of David at this point going, okay, I would probably go home. I'd probably eat at my table. I'd probably be with my wife. And yet Uriah doesn't do that. Yet he stays right there. And this is confusing to David. This isn't part that is logical. It doesn't make sense. So David calls Uriah back. And Uriah begins to explain. Look at verse 10. When they, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. In other words, all, all my buddies and all those that I have command over, the, all the ones that I go to war with, they, they're out fighting right now, and they're on the open field. They're not at their homes with their wives. So look what he says. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Honorable? Yes. Amazingly honorable. Remember what we said that sometimes when we don't see sin in our own lives because of our own blindness, but maybe we see somebody else do what is honorable, what is right. And sometimes that does open our own eyes as it could have David here. You know, he could have said, my goodness, man, I didn't pass that test, Uriah. You're showing me more honor than what I displayed in my own life. But that doesn't happen here. I mean, even men, men, and I'm not trying to exclude the ladies, but, but men, just from, you know, this bravado kind of part of our being. You know, other men are out there fighting, and, and here you're joining the fight. And would it strike you if you were David? Would it possibly kind of, kind of hit upon your heart's door when he says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. When you see honor, doesn't that kind of strike something deep in your heart? But he didn't, David. Strike two. And here's the point that I want to point out. Even if David didn't confess his sin after he slept with Bathsheba, don't you think that he'd feel some guilt, some shame, something when he sees this honor? But he doesn't. So what does he do? He deepens his, his plans. Look at verse 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Okay, I'm going to write this letter. And in this letter, he's going to detail how he wants Uriah to be put on the front lines. Suicide mission. And then he gives it to Uriah to take back to Joab. Look at verse 15. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him. 
that he may be struck down and die. Is there any question in your mind as you would read verse 15 of what the intention of David was? Is he saying, hey, if you just want to, here's a really hard mission, uh, put Uriah in charge of it. No, <laughs> put him in the worst possible situation, then draw back, leaving him there. And he even says that he might be struck down and die. Not only does he send him on a death mission, but he actually gives him the letter to carry. And Joab does exactly what David says. When you're the the main commander, you do what the king says. And he did that. And of course, as they did that, and they began to uh, attack the city there, they went really close to the walls. And uh, from these walls, the archers from the the enemy began to rain down arrows upon them. And and Uriah died. But several other men did too. It, It wasn't the best plan militarily speaking. So Joab then writes back to David and says, okay, I just want you to know, this wasn't me just not coming up with a good military plan. We would have never gotten that close to the walls. We knew that they were able to defend themselves. We met them in the open field and we drove them there, but we would have come up with a different strategy. But look what he says in verse 21. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David, we we accomplished what you wanted. Strike three. Here's what we need to see in these events. In any of this, do you see any sign of repentance in David's heart and life? Even when he takes another man's wife, even when she becomes pregnant, then he has this plot to kill the husband, to cover up his sin, and yet no repentance, no sign of it. And even when he's confronted with the, the honor and the valor of Uriah, there's, there's not repentance. Even when he sends kind of this pre-described suicide mission, no repentance. Church, please, please hear. Man, mankind, left to himself, dives deeper into sin, trying to justify his sin and to cover up his sin. This is our nature. This is our sin nature. Well, no, sometimes, Bobby, I really feel bad. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Our nature is to do what David did. Without the presence of God, without the Holy Spirit, without God's Word and the conviction of God bringing that to our lives Guys, you and I would follow the path of David. Look at chapter 11, verse 27. Uriah dies, and Bathsheba comes, and, and actually David marries her. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Now look at that last. But the thing that David had done... Displeased the Lord. Three strikes. We, we said, even if you're not a big baseball fan, you don't get four strikes. You don't get five strikes. Three strikes, you're out. 
And I promise you we could go back and find more than just three, but there's three obvious ones here in the decision-making of David where he shows no repentance and he just keeps on going deeper and deeper into his sin. So so what do you do? How does God react to that? Does God strike him down dead? There's a thought. You knew better? This is one way to end your sinfulness. Does he cast him to hell? Would you say that in a way that David would deserve either one of those? To, he's already killed a man. He's become an adulterer. Do you think that in, in some way that we could say that would be justice? That for this sin, that this is the result? I think that we could biblically prove that over and over and again. But what does God do? Second Samuel 12.1. One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible, guys. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He's not feeling any conviction. He's just getting deeper in his sin. He's wandering more and more, more and more rebellious to the things of God. And where is God in that? I strike you dead. I cast you to hell. No. I'm going to send my prophet to you. Three strikes, you're out, guys. What we deserve is is this just punishment for our sin and our rebellion. And yet we have this loving and gracious God that pursues us in our rebellion. Not in our holiness. And not even in David waking up one morning and saying, you know, I really feel bad. I've made a mess of my life. We don't see any of that. But we see this in verses 1 through 4. Chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he had bought it up and he had grew it with him and with his children. And it used to eat from his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. I know a lot of you love your dogs. It's like, okay, I can relate. Verse 4. Now uh, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one from his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David listens to this story. And David, he's a king, so he's used to people bringing their problems to him. And probably showing wisdom or discernment. This should be done. This should be done. He hears this story and look what happens in verse 5. Then David's anger was what? Greatly kindled. This wasn't like, hmm. He's enraged. How many of y'all have actual color change in your face when you're greatly kindled. Your anger is greatly kindled. I imagine his face begins to darken and become red. And His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he gets really biblical about it. It's an oath. It's actually an oath from the Old Testament. 
As the Lord lives, this man has done this, deserves to die. You bring me this story, I've made my decision. And then he does come back and he says, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. That's Exodus 22.1. That was the biblical kind of remedy if you took a man's sheep. You give him back four. But this shows us is that he knows what is biblical and yet what is his own assumption? This man should die. So easy to see the sin of others. So easy to be blinded by our own sin. So easy to get righteous as the Lord lives. Let me be biblical about this. You tell me the story, Prophet Nathan, you come from God? Let me give you a godly response. As the Lord lives. This isn't just David's opinion. This is David's opinion of what he thinks God should do. This guy needs to die. Even though I know Exodus 22.1 says, give him back four sheep. So what happens as David is so enraged by this fictitious man? Many of you, if you're familiar with the story, you, you, you know. Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. I would challenge you, church, this morning. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Well, I mean, you said that about that other one, about how the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that couldn't have been fun. And now, Nathan, the prophet of God, is pointing out that David is actually that man. That can't be fun. I mean, is it fun when somebody kind of opens and sheds the light on your sin? It's not fun, but it's beautiful. Well, how, Pastor? How, how in the world can it be beautiful? Because God loves me so much that he doesn't want me to remain in my sin. Next time somebody comes and, and they just love you enough to speak truth and love to your life, and, and you kind of want to reject them, like, well, who are you? Are you perfect? Why do you come? Instead of having that, can you appreciate, especially if, I mean, if they do it in the right spirit, truth and love, hug them. It's probably not going to be your initial response. Unless it's hugging them in that manner. But I say hug them. Why? Because if they truly are used by God to show you your sin, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. That God would work through friends and family and loved ones. And I know what you're thinking. Well, a lot of people come and they come with their own opinion. And I, I get that. Not everybody who comes to, to say something about your life and give judgment in your life is from God. But what I've found about it in my own life, guys, is whether they are an adversary coming not from God or they are an agent sent from God, my reaction usually is the same way. Well, you're not so perfect yourself. Who are you to, you know? And so we... we one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. You are the man. 
And then God begins to tell David all the things they've done for him. It's worth it for you to go back this week and read through 2 Samuel 12 because it, it, there is some darkness there. He says, David, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and you did this in darkness. I'm going to bring it to light. This is how it's going to affect your family. There's... You kind of sow what you reap in, in many regards. I mean, we really do begin to reap the fruit of the things, that, the choices that we've made. And just because God forgives doesn't mean that all of a sudden that all that is just washed away. It is, in a theological sense, an offense to a holy God. And so go back this week and read Second Samuel 12, and you'll find out that uh, David, this will be something on David's in life, in his life for the rest of his life. But here, here's, let me sum it up. Instead of going verse by verse, I wish we had time. David, here's from God. David, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you a palace and a kingdom and wives and a family. And here's what he says. And if this wasn't enough, I would as, um, add as much, uh, I would add to you much more. Well, what is David's sin? Ingratitude toward God. At the base, isn't that what it is? David had many, many wives. Do you think that a lot of those wives were beautiful? Yeah. He's the king. And yet he sees somebody who's not his wife, but is somebody else's wife, and he wants that. It's the sin of ingratitude. It's the basis of his reaction, his rebellion, for him to think independently and rebel against the things of God, break his commands. You look down to verse 13, and in verses 9 through 12, God says that, David had despised the word, and David had despised him, that is God. Look at all the different times in that passage where you see the word in this uh, message that God gives to David. I, 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 I. Here's my question. Does God take your sin and my sin very personally? Yeah. There's an I there. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, as he hears all this, I've sinned against the Lord. He finally comes to this realization of his sin and who his sin is against. Folks, this is the foundation of all biblical repentance. For us to come into understanding of our sin against holy God. The realization of our sin. Remember when we said repentance was last week? Is it just the change of action? No, it's the change of attitude that then leads to a change of action. But let's go just a little bit deeper. It's not just a change of thinking, because that change of thinking could happen to a lot of different things. Well, I was a Democrat, and then I changed my way of thinking, now I'm a Republican. Well, I was a Yankees fan, but now I'm a Braves fan. Folks, we can change our way of thinking... And in a way, that fits the description of repentance. You changed your way of thinking. But in biblical repentance, what is the change of thinking? Where does it go from 
two, it goes from thinking that I have it right to agreeing with God about my sin. That's biblical repentance. A change of thinking. Well, I can do this. This isn't so bad. To agreeing with God, this is rebellion against you. Holy God. You see, changing this mind is based on something. Who God is and His truth and His word. But as important as that truth is, here's the enjoining truth. I want us to see this morning as we close. What was the source of David's repentance? God. His word. His truth. God sending Nathan. Why is this important? Because God has not left it to you to try to stir up, drum up repentance. Holy God, in his love for you, in his mercy and his grace, brings his truth, sometimes through his word, through his spirit, sometimes through his people, to show us that we were wrong, that we've sinned. Folks, God is not only the supplier of repentance, he's the source of repentance. Well, my boy, that a big deal. So it means that you and I are not waiting there at night to try to strum up something in our own lives that we would never be able to strum up. That God in his love is pursuing you. That's the beauty of biblical repentance. We started uh, right before this. We, we sing this song. is kind of where we're going to get to. This is where David gets to in Psalms 51. Creating me a clean heart. Oh my God. Renew a right spirit with me. How, how many is that relevant? Is that a relevant request, a relevant song, a relevant truth in your life this week? This week. From last Sunday to this Sunday. How many of you need, how many of us need to cry out, God, renew in me a right spirit. Create in me a clean heart. See, this is why biblical repentance isn't just for salvation like we talked about last week. It is for our growing and maturing. It's for our sanctification too. It doesn't stop at repentance and I come and I trust Christ in his work for my, as a Savior. No, it's something you're going to need and I'm going to need until the day that he glorifies us. And this is why it's relevant. This is why we're going to spend eight to ten weeks. This is why you're going to go another week of repentance? And I will gladly say as your pastor, yes. Because God has called us into maturity. He's called us into holiness. And I can't do holiness on my own. I can't work it up. I can't strum it up. I'm totally dependent on God, his truth, his spirit, his empowering to create in me a clean heart and a desire to even want to have obedience to him. And I don't know about your heart, but that's my heart. I need him massaging, working. He's already given me. He took out the heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. But now he's having to work that heart. Can you, can you relate to that? That even though, though now you have this heart of flesh, that even this heart of flesh still wants to get hard from time to time? 
Create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence, O God. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Give back to me the joy of thy salvation. Like that day when you saved me and I saw grace and beauty and mercy unlike any other time of my life. What is the source of biblical repentance? He's the supplier. He's the source. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, there's a part of my humanity, Father, that wants to disagree. They say, no, I could probably have, you know, given long enough, I could have probably come around on my own. Father, we see none of that in David. Months later, he's still pursuing this. He thinks he's covered up sin. And he's never come forward. He's never admitted. And Father, as harsh as that is, that would be me. Because in my humanity, Father, I I don't know that I'm just going to always be seeking you out, Father. Father, thank you for the times you've sent a Nathan to our lives. Thank you for the times that your Holy Spirit brought to our mind the heaviness of our sins and the offense of our sins, but also showed us that you provided a way to be restored. So, Father, this is our prayer this morning, creating us a clean heart. Father, renew a right spirit. Restore to us the joy of your salvation that you gave us, that we might go out, Father, and mature in holiness day by day by day. We love you and we thank you, Father. And we sing this song as a personal prayer to you this morning. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.